Would you pray with me? God, as we look at an old text in the middle of the story of your loving pursuit of your people, would you enlighten and enliven our minds and hearts to your grace and mercy, to your character, to your fatherly care, even in the midst of disorientation and exile. Amen. If you have your Bible, we're looking at Ezra chapter 1. I'll be preaching on the entire book, but I'll just be reading chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, Be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonium to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. It was promised that they would get to return. But now Israel becomes an occupied country. The line of the monarchy, the Davidic line, still exists, but no one is sitting on the throne. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that uh, God called Abraham to himself and they had four long, good generations before they ended up in Egypt for about 400 years. And then there's the time that the church state nexus when Israel was without a king because God wanted them to to be ruled by him. That lasted about 400 years. You can read the most colorful version of it in the book of Judges. And then they had a theocratic monarchy. I I used to call it a monarchy, but if you've read um, and have been with us the last few weeks, you know that when the kings were humble before God and prayed (laughs) 
and listened to others correct them and guide them, things went pretty well. And when they didn't, things did not go well. It was about 400 years of that. And now we have the, the part of the story of the people of God where they're in an occupied state until Jesus' incarnation and then a few decades after his life and ministry, a purposeful, though horrific, diaspora. And as I've been looking at Ezra and to a lesser extent, Nehemiah and Esther, which we'll talk about next week and the week after, they're interesting books because compared with the um, stories of the kings and the stories of before the kings, God doesn't seem as active. They'll use phrases like God stirs the hearts. You'll hear Mordecai say something that is quite famous. Maybe you were positioned here for such a time as this. In Nehemiah, people pray and fast, and there are prophets in existence in Israel, but it's less obvious how they interact with one another, the leaders and the priests and the Levites. So there's a different tone in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, and that will help us when we look at some challenging stuff that happens a little bit later in Ezra, but the encouragement of it, I think, is pretty obvious because in Ezra, the leaders look to wisely do their work and live their lives with internal disagreement, external adversaries, and people that don't care and aren't going to take care of them. And friends, that's our life. We long to live wisely in light of God's existence and his truth. We long to not be foolish when we have adversaries, and we do. Hopefully not as aggressive as the neighbors in Ezra's story. But in Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, we see the challenge of that. The sojourners return, and they receive a lot of opposition from outside. And we see them humble, humbly pray, they fast, they worship, and they follow what they believe God to be telling them to do. I was thinking this week about the interesting irony of the fact that uh, most of us pray with some kind of regularity, yet many of us are in active disobedience to God while we're doing something so spiritual. Watching the followers of God in Ezra and Nehemiah potentially overreact, but also attempt to pray and then do is worth our time. Has anyone ever told you that you prayed about something too much? I'm, I doubt it. If, if you have, I'd love to hear the story. Because there is a point where we can pray about something too long because we have to actually take action, right? And yet, in some of our... <laughs> some of our overly spiritual tendencies, we would never say, I think you've actually prayed about this too long. If anyone's ever said that to you, I'd, I'd love to hear the story because I think if you come into my office and you tell me about praying about your college decision for six years in between 18 and 24, and I say you've prayed about this too long, you would still think I was telling you something unspiritual. And yet the reality is there's some kind of 
um, tension where we are to pray and seek God's face for how we are to live and then we are to take action. Where Ezra will encourage us if we'll pay attention is one of the ways is that waiting for a Christian is an active discipline. I know I just said that we can pray about things for too long. I wouldn't say we can pray about something too much. I would say we can pray about something too long. And these books ask us to know what we already know, which is that there is um, a challenge of living as a God follower, a Christ follower, in a world that either doesn't care or is in active adversarial relationship with it. Have you had a bad boss? I remember the first really bad boss I had. I was 19. I worked at a pizza de- delivery place, and you know, they, they have those signs on, the, on them and on the cars that say drivers carry less than $50 or $20 or whatever. And the way that we did that was we dropped the cash in these little, they looked like shoeboxes and they were steel. And one of my managers was stealing from me. And I remember stopping and I talked to another manager about it and he basically said, you're going to have to figure this out. And I was like, huh. And I figured it out. I stopped putting my money in the little metal shoebox and carried it in my car. Risked being robbed. The sign on my car was a lie, but I figured it out. For a Christian, when you have a bad boss, this is an opportunity to act the way that the God followers do in Ezra when they're receiving uh, external opposition in, in two different forms, both people not being for them and the local government saying to um, the Persians, they're slandering them. For us, we get to abide with that boss and still be kind to them, not lie to them, not pretend like we like them, not pretend like they're not stealing from us. But if we have no other recourse, we still don't retaliate. We don't steal back from them. We don't slash the guy's tires, though I can picture him and I'm like, huh, it still bothers me. But it was a good lesson for me. But the, but the point is for a Christian, waiting is not passive and is part of our growing up as a God follower. If you've ever been sick for more than a week or two, you're waiting to get better. And you still get to act like a Christian, though with physical limits that you didn't have before that you were sick. Waiting is an active discipline. You think of the worst teacher that you ever had, high school or college? I remember a, a teacher in college, and he was a very, very good teacher but he liked me better when I was acing my quizzes and I stopped acing them for some personal reasons midway through the semester and he stopped calling on me as often. I was like, oh man. An opportunity to still act like a Christian to Dr. Foley. And this becomes even more poignant for us when we hear and understand and receive the promises of Jesus. Because we are waiting for him to put away death forever. We are actively waiting on him to put it away forever. 
And in the meantime, we mourn whenever there's a death of a friend or a family member or someone near us. We learn to sit on the mourner's bench with one another. We are waiting for Jesus to put away sin. <laughs> no one prepared me for that, by the way. First day at the church was January 15th, 2014. And I remember talking with the elders regularly about outdoor worship, and no one said, and by the way, when a plane flies over, you should keep talking or wait. You have suggestions on how to handle airplanes? I would welcome them. I think I'm supposed to pause. We see the followers of God in Ezra, and I'll explain this historically a little bit more in a second, waiting at times because they're being opposed in a military fashion and because they're an occupied state. So they're not just going to rebel against the Persians, though later in Israel's history they do that and it goes very poorly. And my, the way I'm adapting that in the sermon is that waiting is something that Christians do and it is anything but passive. Jesus has said that he will put away sin. In the meantime, as we wait on him to do that, we still repent when we sin we ask for forgiveness and we change. And we forgive those who sin against us, which is a way of waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promises. And it's anything but passive. When we see oppression, we remember that he is going to put away oppression forever. And in the meantime, we might have a little bit of work to do where we have some influence in the world against that oppression. We might be generous with what we have. It affects the way that we vote. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 happens at about 537 to 515 or 16 BC. And then Ezra chapter 7 through the book of Nehemiah is a about 70 years later, because some of these things took a while. Cyrus sends, what I read a few minutes ago, Cyrus sends as many Israelites as wanted to back. That was about 538. They receive about six years of oppression by a neighbor, and they're wise about it and careful. And then they have to wait for 10 years to rebuild the temple. It was finished about 22 years after it was started. That's where our, I came up with the waiting as an active Christian discipline, which is anything but passive, but it is a part of the tension of the with God life. We believe God will put away death, but he hasn't yet. And we have an opportunity to be good friends and neighbors and to receive that when we're grieving. He's going to put away sin, but he hasn't yet. And in the meantime, we repent when we're aware of our sin and we forgive others who sin against us. We see oppression and injustice everywhere and we have a small amount of good to do in the world as God followers. And that's actually what Christian waiting looks like. The sojourners return to opposition from outside and from inside. 
And I hope this is a reminder to you, what, is the, what was the purpose of the nation state of Israel? It was to draw all people to worship the one living and true God, to learn about his rest, to learn how to interact with others in light of his goodness. The reason I say that is, at the end of Ezra, there's this very interesting story. And if you read the Bible as though all of it is God's promises, God's commands, and there's no nuance and there's no personality, the end of Ezra will disorient you because about a hundred people are encouraged strongly by Ezra to divorce their foreign wives. God doesn't say to do it. There are some prophets uh, in the midst and they don't get to talk, which is interesting. Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah is the grandson of Iddo. Iddo's the prophet we don't know anything about that I'd really like to know something about. He's referenced all the time in these historical books and we just don't know what he did or said. Anyway, Zechariah and Haggai are there. They don't talk about this in their own books. They don't talk about this in Ezra. So when you're disoriented by something in the scriptures, a question is, did God tell them to do this? Does this match with God's word? Is God against inter-ethnic marriage? No. In Deuteronomy 23, he actually gives prescription for it. The Edomites and the Egyptians are treated one way. The Moabites are treated another way because of the way they interacted with Israel when Israel came out of Egypt. So my interpretation of Ezra saying to about these hundred people, you need to divorce these people, is he's overreacting because of the incredible damage done through idolatry during the kings. I know I preached on 2 Chronicles last week, and many of you were like, gosh, we should do a series on 2 Chronicles. It's such a terrific book. It's actually so interesting. Ezra is probably remembering something like this from 2 Chronicles 33, when he encourages people to divorce their foreign wives. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery. You see, the problem with foreigners is not them being foreign. It's if they continue to worship gods that are violent and evil. And you decide, well, I can worship Yahweh and I can offer every other child as a sacrifice. That's how dangerous idolatry is and was, is for us spiritually and was for them at the time. book of Kings, you often have the humble kings consult 
the prophets, and I kind of want to know what Haggai and Zechariah thought about this. I also think the reason this is in the scriptures is because it happened, and it helps us understand the Israel that Jesus at times sharply criticized. His sharpest criticisms were those who added to the book of the law and overreacted. to violations of it. I don't think Ezra was sinning in leading the people because there's some reference that the, the, the about a hundred or so people that needed to do this in his mind were um, in apostasy, which means they were worshiping both other gods and God. But we don't know the whole story. And oftentimes when we come to something in the scriptures that, that bothers us, which you really, if you read the Bible and nothing in it bothers you, I just don't, Are you reading it for content? Are you following it? We just don't know very much about this story, but I believe it prefigures the Israel that Jesus had a lot of sharp criticisms for. Zechariah's prophecy, written about the same time that this is happening in Ezra, is about the people's need for a savior instead of a king. The Savior who is a king would be better said. The sojourners return. They have opposition from outside and from inside from the toll that it was taking them to wait. We do have beautiful pictures of them worshiping in their full grief and humanity from being exiled and then from coming back and being so overjoyed that they were allowed to come back. In Ezra chapter 3, it says this, in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Although many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. We see the people of God return. We see them opposed by their neighbors. We see them struggling to renew their allegiance back to God. And we see them worshiping, some sad and some joyful which is a, a, a picture of our full humanity before God because we have a lot of reasons to be sad and we have a lot of reasons to praise and thank him. We see them renewing their allegiance to God with one another, praying, waiting, not waiting. And we see them considering wisely 
what it means to be a follower of God in a world that is ambivalent and even adversarial to God and his promises and his commands. And our story is a lot like theirs. We have these good promises and they fill us with joy to the extent that we understand them and are gripped by them. And yet we're waiting amidst affliction and the curse and adversaries and those that are ambivalent. And waiting for a Christian is anything but passive. We still get to be kind as we wait. Waiting is anything but passive for a Christian. We mourn with one another. Waiting is active for us. We're generous with our words and our stuff and our time and our gifts. This has always been the opportunity for God's people and it is ours as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we long to joyfully follow you amidst a world that does not appreciate or honor or understand your promises and commands. Father, we ask that you would comfort us that it might be anything but a burden to follow you. Jesus, we praise and thank you for perfecting the kingship of your people, for guiding us into eternal life here and in the next life. Holy Spirit, we ask for your strength, encouragement, and guidance in this world. Amen.